Welcome to Palmdale United Methodist Church's podcast for Sunday, January 6, 2019. May God use this as a blessing to you today. Let us pray. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, you who are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. When Ann Patchett uh, published her first novel in 1992, Patron Saint of Liars, it was chosen as a New York Times Book of the Year. It's a story of Rose Clinton and her daughter Cecilia who live at St. Elizabeth's Home for Unwed Mothers in uh, Habit, Kentucky. Rose is the cook, but Cecilia is the darling of the place. She's petted and mothered by all the young women who will soon give up their own babies for adoption. One May, when she's 15 years old, Cecilia meets one of the new girls who's just come to St. Elizabeth's. Her name is Lorraine, and she is skinny and has this head of red curls. She stands out by the front sign of St. Elizabeth's for close to two hours before getting up enough nerve to come inside. And Lorraine is about to have a nervous breakdown while she waits to be interviewed by Mother Corrine, the nun in charge. So Cecilia decides to give her a little bit of good advice. She says, you know, the guy that got you pregnant, don't say he's dead. Everybody says that, and it makes Mother Corrine crazy. Lorraine put her hands under her thighs and sat on them like they were cold. She was quiet for a moment and then said finally, um, yeah, I was going to say that, she said. See? So what do I tell her, asked Lorraine. I don't know. Tell her the truth or tell her you don't remember. And then Lorraine asked a question that left Cecilia shocked and speechless. She said, well, what did you tell her? Here's how Cecilia felt in her own words. I sat there absolutely frozen. I I felt like I had just been mistaken for some escaped mass murderer. I, I felt like I was going to be sick, but that would have only proved her assumption. No, no one had ever, ever mistaken me for one of them, not even as a joke. The lobby felt small and airless. I thought I was going to pass out. Cecilia was horrified because she had been mistaken for one of them, one of those people whose bad decisions had derailed their lives, one of those who had done something so shameful that their own families had packed them away to live with strangers until the evidence could be put up for adoption. Cecilia had been mistaken for a sinner when she had done absolutely nothing wrong. And it wasn't as if she didn't like sinners. I mean, she'd grown up all around them. She was friendly and helpful and gave them good advice. She just never expected to be mistaken for one of them. Because in her own mind, she was of another order of being. I mean, she was a virgin, and she thought everyone could see that. It's the first Sunday of the new year, 2019. Today we're going to be kicking off the new year by venturing into the waters of baptism. We'll spend some time examining our own lives, but we'll also spend time with Jesus and his baptism. And my hope and prayer is that by the end of it, we'll all come out a little bit renewed. In today's scripture reading from the Gospel of Matthew, we find that the Jordan River has a lot in common with St. Andrew's or St. Elizabeth's home for unwed mothers. Both are loaded with sinners, (laughs) Lots of sinners. Lots of the thems. In his book, Moments with the Savior, Ken Geyer comments that the Jordan Valley is an unsightly scar on the landscape that stretches between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. The Jordan River brings life 
to a thirsty valley. Its tufted banks are fringed with green, with reeds and tamarisks and bent over willows that drop their leaves like water into the water like tears. This was not some place where people normally pass through on their way around town. This was the wilderness. I mean, people literally went out of their way to get there. On the surface, the people who gathered here looked like ordinary people, merchants, soldiers, tax collectors, religious leaders, farmers, ordinary everyday people. But it was just on the outward appearance. On the inside, things looked quite different. On the inside, there were lies and deceit and fraud, idolatries and adulteries, hateful word and vengeful reprisals, theft, murder, and a litany of broken laws, broken vows, and broken relationships. In short, this was a place for sinners, and they all knew it. These faulty, sorry, guilty human beings had come to be cleansed, and none of them had illusions of their own innocence. With brokenness all over the riverbanks, John the baptizer cries out, Repent! Repent! And one by one they come forward. These people who are, as Ken Geyer puts it, the gullies of eroded character and the gaping potholes left by the washout of sin. And out of the gravel of their broken hearts, John begins to pave a highway in the wilderness, a highway in the desert for the coming Messiah. It is into this valley of brokenness that Jesus descends, down to where the Jordan flows 300 feet below sea level. You may be surprised to know that there are many passages in the New Testament that some biblical scholars have serious questions as to whether they actually originated with Jesus. His baptism, however, is not one of those passages in question. In fact, all four gospel writers deal with Jesus' baptism, and only the most skeptical of historians call it into question. Of course, Jesus' life, his historicity is not in question. We know he was a person that lived and died in Palestine, but the only two events of his life that have almost universal acclaim are his baptism and his crucifixion. At the same time, it should be noted that the Christian church has never really been quite comfortable with Jesus getting baptized. I mean, when comparing the varying accounts, each in the four Gospels, one cannot miss the unease that the writers talk about this moment in Jesus' life. Matthew elaborates on Mark's story by adding that John tried to talk Jesus out of being baptized. Luke never says that it was John who baptized Jesus, just that Jesus got baptized. The Gospel of John talks about a dove descending upon Jesus, with John the baptizer commenting that here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, but it never actually mentions that Jesus got baptized while he was in the water. Scholars say that all this embarrassment is our surest proof that Jesus really was baptized by John. Because when someone tells you something that's not in his or her best interest for you to know, eh, you can be reasonably sure that they're telling the truth. So let's go back to the Jordan Valley along the riverbanks with sinners pressed up near John, wading into the waters to be cleansed from their sins. And along comes Jesus. Matthew describes how John protested Verse thir- chapter 13, verse 4, John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? John knows that Jesus doesn't need repentance. What sin had he committed? He's the son of God, for goodness sake. Likewise, the church really doesn't know what to do with the fact that Jesus got baptized. Barbara Brown Taylor, in her book, 
Home by Another Way has a wonderful section in her sermon on Jesus' baptism that describes what it might have been like if Jesus would have had proper PR people, you know, to manage his image. She says this, if Jesus had PR people, they would have never, ever allowed him to be baptized. He could have stood on the shore, offered words of encouragement to those who were going into the water, yes. He could have held out his hand to those who struggled to get out of the river with their heavy, wet clothes, but he could not, under any circumstances, have gone into the water himself. Unless, of course, it was to tap John on the shoulder and say, hey, you go rest, I'll take over for a while. Even if he were innocent, even if his intentions were nothing but good, it would be ruinous to his reputation. Who was going to believe that he was just there because he cared about these people and refused to separate himself from them? I mean, with gossip being what it was, who was not going to think that he had just a few teeny-weeny little things to get off his conscience before he went into public ministry? We spend a lot of time in the Christian church talking about God's love for sinners. And we love parables like the prodigal son, right? That rebellious kid that demands money that he only get after his father dies and he goes off into a foreign land and he wastes it all and spends it and then comes crawling home. And what happens but the father receives him and welcomes him back with opening arms. We delight in the fact that Jesus associated with tax collectors and prostitutes and other assorted sinners, as the Bible says. We really like verses like Romans 8, 39, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Or Exodus 34, 6 and 7, the Lord God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And we know of God's love and mercy for sinners. And yet at the same time, we take great pains to make sure that we are never mistaken for one of them. You know what I'm talking about, or is it just me? Right? The problem is we sometimes forget passages like Romans 3.23, which remind us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we know that God forgives sinners, but we don't want others to know that we are actually one of them. Here's a question. When's the last time you actually told someone about a sin that you were struggling with? When was the last time you admitted to another human being out loud specifically how you have fallen short of the glory of God? I mean, I know for me personally, I have to think long and hard before I answer that question because it's been a while. Why is that? Many of us have been part of this amazing church, Palmdale United Methodist, for, for some time. Why is it that in a place like this, where we should feel the most love and care and support, why is it that we still have a hard time admitting to others that we've sinned? I mean, I know that we're worried that people might be shocked to find out our secrets and our shadows. What would they think of us? What would it do to our reputation, our character, our standing not only in the church, but in the eyes of the people that are so important to us? There's a saying that God knows us better than we know ourselves. Psalm 139 says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me and are acquainted with all of my ways. God knows all about us, and God still decided to give himself to us in the presence of Jesus. That's the gift of Christmas, right? Emmanuel, God is with us. God doesn't wait until we have it all together and then sends his spirit or his son. God comes in all of our messiness and gives us himself. John told Jesus he didn't need to be baptized. Jesus said, that's okay, I still think I want to do it. 
I mean, it wasn't enough for Jesus to stand on the banks and be a spectator. He wanted to come into the water with us. That's the amazing mystery of the incarnation, that God came to us through Jesus and fully entered every aspect of our humanity, including standing with us in all our sinfulness and filth. In just a few moments, we'll have the opportunity to renew our baptisms. Now, some of us were baptized as infants, and we had no clue who Jesus was or what God might be doing in our lives at that moment. Others of us may have come into the waters as a youth, as a young adult, or as an adult, making a public confession of God's place in our lives and our commitment to Jesus. Both are faithful acts honored by God. Both are recorded in Scripture. Both, in effect, placed us in the same river with Jesus, that same river with sinners who have gone before us and with sinners who will come long after us. And today we can reaffirm that covenantal connection with them and our relationship with God. When we come to renew our baptism, friends, we are participating in an act that has radical consequences. Romans 6 3 to 10 reminds us this. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him by baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will be certainly united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be destroyed and we might no longer be enslaved to sin. For whoever has died is freed from sin. But if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. So you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. I think what Paul is saying here is that through our baptism, we go through a spiritual death and resurrection like Jesus had a physical death and resurrection. And we're freed from the grip that sin has on our life. It doesn't mean we'll never sin again, but that the consequences of sin will not have a hold on us. We don't have to wallow in the fact that we're horrible, terrible, no good, very bad people. We are given a new reality and a new identity. The old ways of life and the habits and the connections to people has changed. And we are now intimately bound together, not only with Jesus, but with the fellowship of believers. And so we have a chance today to renew our baptisms. And don't worry about being mistaken for one of them because all of us are one of them. John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, had something that he did on this Sunday, the first Sunday of every new year. It was called his Covenant Renewal Service. And we've talked about this prayer. In fact, it's the song uh, that the band just played for us is the, the, the framework of this prayer. I thought it would be the perfect time for us uh, to, to pray it again as we get ready to renew our baptismal vows, as we start off this new year. And so I invite you to pray with me uh, the words that you find on the screen. I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you. Exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and wholeheartedly Yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. And now, glorious and blessed God, 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are mine and I am yours, so be it. And the covenant now made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen. Beautiful prayer, isn't it? In fact, if you've downloaded our app, uh, we've loaded it onto the app already. When you open it up on the home screen, you'll see there, I think it says uh, a New Year's prayer. And in fact, you can then save it to your, another part of your phone or to your computer. Um, or we have some hard copies that we've made and they're sitting out in the lobby on your way out. You can pick one up. I invite you to take the prayer, put it on your mirror, put it on your refrigerator, put it in your car, someplace that you'll see it on a regular basis. Remember that love and connection that God has for you and the commitment that you have made to walk in God's ways through all the ups and the downs. Friends, today is the first Sunday of a brand new year. Don't let it slip by as if it's just any other Sunday. Be honest with yourself and with God. We are all one of them. We are all sinners saved by God's grace. Today, let us not only remember our baptismal vows, but remember that we are beloved children of God. As God blessed Jesus and said, you are my son with whom I am well pleased, we each are God's sons and daughters. And no matter what we've done or not done, God is pleased with us. Doesn't mean we're perfect, but God gives his blessing to us over and over again. Thanks be to God for the gift of baptism, for the blessing of being part of the community, for this new year that God has given each one of us. Amen.